Good morning, good morning, good morning. This is your uh, two-minute warning, and I am your opening act for Reverend James Grady, who has just entered the room. Take your time, Pastor, get some coffee. Um, I did want to share a couple of things before he jumps into Bible study. Yesterday, um, how many of you know uh, Pastor Geyer, Reverend uh, James Geyer? Yes, Mm -hmm. some of you do, okay? So he is now the new senior pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which also has a school. So yesterday afternoon at 2 o'clock, he was installed, and uh, I was able to uh, go up there and uh, attend that. Um, Also in attendance uh, were the Hans and... uh, Mr. Kramer was able to go uh, with his wife and uh, two daughters. So we had a, had a good uh, representation there from Advent. Keep him in your prayers. Uh, now that he and his wife and family are close by, uh, you, you, might, you might see him every now and then or no. We'll, we'll see. So uh, busy charge. So that was going on with that. Uh, the second thing is just a housekeeping item. You might have noticed that we've had a little bit of a sewer smell in the church. Raise your hand if you've noticed that. Okay, yeah, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you don't smell anything and you don't really care, okay? So about a week and a half, two weeks ago, Pastor Grady and I, we were coming in the, the doors and then opening the door for preschoolers every morning. We're like, what is that? Somebody left a diaper somewhere, right? And it uh, turns out that the exhaust fan downstairs where the sun, there's, a, there's a big sump collection for all the sewer and uh, there's a fan that's supposed to suck the gas and the smell right out of the room and take it outside, and that fan stopped working. So uh, thanks to our uh, um, assistant head trustee, Reverend James Grady, that fan has been replaced as of yesterday. So we'll see how well that works, but probably the seals on that uh, whole sump system are probably fading fast. So anyway, okay, that's what's going on with that. Uh, VBS is coming up. Uh, If you haven't uh, got registered for that, uh, please do that. If you're able to volunteer, please do that as well. Uh, If you are interested in helping out with uh, Sunday school, always looking for extra teachers, that sort of thing. One of the things this next year we're going to try and be working a little bit more on is uh, uh, children, family, and youth. Okay. So uh, with that in mind, if there are any of you that are interested in helping with junior high youth or senior high youth, a couple or individual, uh, come talk to uh, me or pastor. Um, we're going to try and, and start doing a few more activities for both our junior high group and also high school group. Okay? All right. Anything else? Are you ready, Pastor Grady? I think so. Okay. We're on Chapter 2 of The Saving Truth, Doctrine for Lay People right. by uh, Reverend Kurt, now sainted, Marquardt. Good, good? Good, good. All right. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers, wherever you are. See, okay. he's not the only singing pastor, is he? Oh, my mic's on. Whoops. Nobody's joining in. I didn't pick a tune you knew. Um, and to that, real very quickly, Psalm 139. You don't have to look this up. Um, 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Um, the you there is God the Father, Holy Spirit, Son, one God, working in the womb of a woman to knit together his people, his creation. Uh, if you ever as a woman have a doubt that you're blessed by God, look at that verse 
and what has gone on in your life as God allows you to be a vehicle that still has this wonderful role in creation and God's creation and bringing forth children into this world. Um, an amazing thing that, that God is present there doing his work and giving children. Um, I just wanted to say that. Okay. To know our Savior Christ, therefore. This is how I know where we were. Um, okay. Just to uh, recap a bit. Uh, in scriptures, uh, the existence of God is never questioned. Uh, it, the assumption is God's holy word being true to what it says, and that what it says is true about God. So there is no human, well, you know, God should be this way or God should be that way. Uh, the Bible tells us what God is. There's no speculation in the Bible about the origin or development of God, although that sort of thing was quite common in the ancient uh, religions. Oh, wait, it says ancient heathen religions. The religions of God did not, true God, did not question his existence. They might have run from it, they might have been mad at it, they might have uh, fallen away and worshipped other gods, but they always knew there was God. Um, the, uh, let's see, God's creation bespeaks his goodness and wisdom. And we see that at, at, through creation and through all he does for his people to save them. Um, the evidence is so clear that anyone may see that is know that there is an invisible God who is all-powerful and yet has created this visible order. And we see that in science when they get down to the but what about? And they keep digging, they just get to the unexplainable. And just something out of our grasp had to create everything. Um, so, that runs us up to, uh, we talked a little bit about atheists, how I don't understand. Atheists is without God, have no God, how they get so upset about something they don't care about. Um, it just boggles my mind. And that the problem for us as human creatures, sinful fallen human creatures, is uh, we want God to be an explanation of everything around us. We want to have, have a God serve to you know, explain why everything happens. Uh, what God wants to do is explain Christ and how we should know Christ and how we should know salvation through Christ. He wants to be known through his Son. Um, so in the scriptures, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of salvation are inextricably linked uh, of who brings us to salvation, and that's Jesus. So that brings us to, I think, right here. It says, to know our Savior Christ, therefore, is to have salvation, to know God, and there is no other way to know God. So uh, let's um, start late with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that your people, your creation, may see his face. And in seeing his face, we have seen you. We have seen God the Father, who has created all things, knits things together in women's wombs, and you have given your Son that we may know you through him. And we give thanks for this in his name. Amen. 
Um, so we'll read on from there, I guess. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, better text say God, which is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Just prior to this text, John had spoken of the incarnation and said that divine grace and truth are gained only through Christ. No man can see God and live, yet the Son declares that God makes himself uh, known to all who believe in the Son. So Jesus can say that one who has seen him, the incarnate Son, has seen the Father. In fact, he can assure believers in him of eternal life because he and the Father are one, in essence, John 10.30, and because he and the Father work in intimate union as he carries out the works of salvation. Um, Jesus continually said, you know, he was doing his Father's work, uh, and that was uh, bringing the kingdom of God near through miracles and through uh, acts and, uh, of just people could not believe, um, and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, in Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is the very image of God's substance. And St. Paul says that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus, when the evangelist says that, that the Son, Jesus, is ever-existing in the bosom of the Father, he is speaking of direct seeing or knowledge of God, which we have through Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God himself. So we don't get to know God uh, by picking something we want to make a God. Uh, we don't get to make up our God. We only know God through J Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is not a mere reflection of God, Christ's witness of the deity. He declares God to us because he is God. We have a knowledge of God and eternal life only when we know Christ. But how do we know Christ? Not by a heroic act of faith, line, leaping blindly into the dark, not by historic research, Certainly we cannot turn back the clock and walk with him and talk with him as the disciples did. We know and receive his grace through his word, the informative and powerful gospel, word of scripture. And this is written, the word of the Old Testament, which Christ fulfilled, and the New Testament, which he guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. In this revelatory word affords knowledge, knowledge of God, divinely revealed information about God. My grandmother... Um, I remember talking to her before she died, and she would read her Bible every day, but she just, oh, I just, I can't read the Old Testament. There's so much violence, and there's so much uh, murder, and there's just, just wars, and all these things going on. It just, um, and she read it just seeing the law, just God punishing his people for what they did not do. They did not honor, love, fear, trust him above all things. They worshiped idols, and he punished them. Uh, he, he used uh, other, other countries, heathen nations, to punish them to, so they would turn back to him. Um, and this is where you see, you know, in Isaiah and things where the goodness of God still comes through. He always promises. And they're never going to do it themselves. It's always... God the Father saying, I will do this. You can't. I will do this. And, and with the, the youngest kids, I always point to, to uh, the uh, Israelites leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. And they get to the Red Sea, and it's like, what are we going to do? You know, and Moses is like, God, what are we going to do? You know, here comes Pharaoh and the chariots, and we can hear the thunder. And if it's like the Old West, where you see the smoke coming on the horizon and the cavalry's coming, or the Indians, and it's like, okay, this is trouble. And God just says, no, just stand still and just, 
I, I got this. And he parts the sea, and they walk through on dry ground. I just think that's one of the, one of the most uh, visible or most, uh, not the word visible, what does I want to say? The, most, the greatest images you can see of where God just says, I got this, I'm doing this. I mean, if you can't somehow comprehend the resurrection in that, comprehend that God just does it all. They did nothing. They stood there and he said, walk, and they walked. That was it. And through the water, hmm, sort of like baptism-like. Um, so the Old Testament, when you see it Christologically and what God does, uh, really through the power of Christ in the Old Testament, um, takes on a whole new meaning because what you begin to see is, yeah, I'm one of those Israelites. I, uh, I tend to mess up a lot and I tend to deny God. Sermon this morning, not to be a spoiler, but boy, if you're someone like me that doesn't have a lot of patience at times, and you're just like, get this done, get something done, anything done. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, my lack of patience is somewhat of an idol because I want that taken care of right now or something. And uh, to just say, nope, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, and God will take care of this when I let him do it. So uh, patience is a good thing, and, and that's what we learn in the Old Testament as well. Um, so the New Testament, uh, let's see. Okay, and this, this written word of, of the Old Testament, which Christ fulfilled, and of the New Testament, which he guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit to his apostles, this revelatory word affords knowledge, knowledge of God, divinely revealed information about God. Um, okay, promoters of neo-orthodoxy deny the scriptures provides a cognitive deny the scriptures provides a cognitive knowledge about God and devotees of modern logical positivism, positivistic, all theology, yeah, is nonsense. Okay, no, they're nonsense. Um, so, what is God like? The Bible speaks less about the essence and attributes of God than about his works in history and the lives of believers. Go back to the Old Testament. They can't, he does. One simply cannot get at the essence of God by speculation or by depicting him in a stone or wood, which is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. God is holy and transcendent. He is the living God who cannot be caught by static images or conceptions. The emphasis throughout Scripture upon the actions, the emphasis throughout Scripture upon the actions of God, upon his interventions in history and his dealings with people show us that he is a living God. Um, I'm thinking. Burning bush, active. Um, what other theophanies are there where God appears? And then I, I don't think a tree ever just appeared and a voice came out of the, you know, trunk or some dead thing. God, God appears in 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 living forms, as it were. Um, so He shows that He's living God. He fights for them and He guides them. Uh, the uh, I, can you pull up a text? First uh, Samuel seventeen twenty six, maybe. Maybe these are ones I wanted. I don't know. Da 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 da. This is why we need two screens in here. <laughs> Patience, I know, I know. That's called budget. <laughs> 
Let's see. Anyway, he loves his people and comforts them, and when they thirst after him, he fills them, and they find rest in him. Uh, the living God is utterly dependable. Um, so, oh, 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the, this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is it, this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Next verse. Oh, maybe. 26, 27. Let's see. Uh, there we go. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Uh, keep going. Okay. Um, I'm missing. 36, yeah, 36. There we go. Scroll down. Everybody's there before me. 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled... Uh, or, yeah, defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So they said, Go and the Lord be with you. A Lord that's with you. And a Lord that delivered him from these things. God is a living God. And he acts. Um, the living God is an author and sustainer of all life. In him we live and move and have our being. It is significant that in the New Testament, Christ is called life and the source of all life uh, and all that is, thus showing he is God. A central motive of, motive of Scripture is that God is the origin of life and all life springs from him. All life is a gift from him, and this is because God himself is living, uh, as I said in the, uh, that psalm I read uh, about knitting you together in your mother's womb. Life, activity, presence for us are fundamental to God's nature. He is not some pantheistic ground of being. As a living God, he is personally concerned about the world and his people. Um, I guess that's hard for some people to believe. Uh, maybe hard for impatient people to believe sometimes that God has an eye on his people and is concerned about what's going on in their world. Um, that's probably something to bring to people you know who don't know Christ, don't know Jesus, and don't have faith, that, that they could learn that there is a God that is personally concerned about them and about this world. And, and uh, do I want to say that? Yeah, he's concerned about ecology and animals, and he's concerned about a lot of things, but he's concerned mostly about his highest creation, and that's those people he has created and given the ability to know him. Above all other things, God gave us his spirit. When he created us, when he formed man out of the dust, he breathed his spirit into him and gave us the ability of all other creatures to know him and have a relationship with him. And that's what scripture is all about, how we have this relationship with God. So, um, yeah. Where was I? There we go. 
The living God is a personal God. The, person, the personal nature of God is brought out in many ways. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 speaks of the face of Jesus Christ, that is, his personality. We pray to a God, and he answers. We trust him as we trust a person. We say thou to him and he to us. Throughout Scripture, our relationship with him is always personal. God has a will. He makes decisions. All his actions, all of his actions toward us are personal. His grace and love and goodness, as well as his wrath and judgment, are personal actions. Um, his wrath and judgment are personal actions. Um, if you've uh, been a parent yet, or if you've been at the receiving hand of a parent, you know how sometimes there needs to be a little bit of uh, wrath, a little bit of correction, and this is what God does. He loves us enough to try and keep us on course to know Him and have eternal life and not fail. When Scripture describes God as wise and true and good, it describes eminently personal attributes to God. You can't look at a stone carving of something or a wood carving of something and say, well, gee, that statue is wise and good. And no, it, it has none of the above. It, it doesn't speak. It doesn't talk. It doesn't, it can't be known. It can be a thing you can touch, but it's not anything that can speak to you. Um, let's see. His grace and love and goodness, as well as his wrath and judgment are personal actions. I'm stepping back. When Scripture describes God as wise and true and good, it describes eminently personal attributes. Although love cannot be called the essence of deity, still it can be said that, per, that the personal God is love. This is true, and in all his will and all his work, especially in, Christ, in Christ's work. Biblical anthropomorphisms, expressions that describe human parts to God, and anthropomorphisms, expression, anthropopathisms, yeah, expressions that describe human affections or feelings or reactions to God, emphasize his personal nature in a striking way. In fact, the very transcendence of God is expressed by some anthropomorphisms, thus showing that even though God is one who is personally related to man, nevertheless, there is no common measure between God and man. Anthropomorphisms bring out the uniqueness of God and at the same time tell us about him cognitively. They are not mere naive thoughts or primitive people concerning God, but are God's own revealed descriptions of himself and his actions in human terms with infinite, which infinite and sinful man can understand. Um, I spoke before and said, you know, if you study anthropology, all civilizations have some uh, theme of creation and of a god. Um, this goes back to primitive people just trying to describe where the stars come from, why does the sun come up every morning, you know, and they make up a god that will account for these things, but it's out of their own mind. Um, god gives us his word so we can know him and his power and what he does for us ultimately, always, salvation. Um, these and other figures of speech must, must be taken, therefore, in all seriousness, for they tell of God as he really is and as he really acts. So, the personal nature of God is brought out in Scripture also by the intimate relationship and dealings of God with man. This personal fellowship is expressed often by the verb walk in Scripture. Adam walked with God in the garden. Enoch walked with God. 
This means that Adam and Enoch had intimate communion with him. No estrangement or disrupting factors broke that fellowship. Um, a different but related word used by Jesus in the, New in the New Testament word love, which expresses the intimate relationship of husband and wife. Jesus says, if a man love me, he will keep, cling to my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode, dwelling place, with him. Um, the very thought that God is with us and in us in this communion that we have um, and you can think of communion, bread, wine, but that he is present in us as his people, and we have one communion with him, and we are all gathered with him, and he in us. Um, the, uh, and he loves us. God's intimate personal association with men is seen also in the term know in Scripture. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I and am known of mine, or known by them. Jesus knows us with the same intimacy that he knows the Father and the Father knows him. Such personal knowledge of love, communion between God and man is unique to the Christian religion. Still other attributes, um, I tell you what, no, what's not? How about uh, Isaiah 52.6? You can read with me. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know it is I who speak. Here I am. The uh, God gives us his word so that we can know. And, and in the Old Testament, he showed his power to save uh, with them as he redeemed them or brought them back from the trials you know, that he sent them into. Um, <laughs> and this communion that we're in, where we are to love each other, um, I, I'm going to preschool because <laughs> we sing a song in preschool all the time. Uh, God loves um, or we love, you know, we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. We love, we love, we love because God first loved us. You got to clap. I don't know. But, but it, the truth of that, even to these little kids, is you have no love in you without Christ's love, God's love in you. Um, we're incapable of it. You know, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. A man can't love his wife, a wife can't love her husband, parents can't love their kids, uh, and the ultimate expression of that love is to bring them up in the fear and love of the Lord. Um, so, still another attribute, an activity ascribed to God tells of his personal relationship with mankind, his presence among us. We are speaking here not so much of his immensity, his replete of filling presence, whereby he fills and sustains and upholds all things as we are speaking of his gracious personal presence. For God's replete of omnipresence, he also declares clearly that he is a personal God. Yet this comes primarily in terms of his sovereignty, his utter transcendence, and his awesome majesty and wrath. In the main, it is a preachment of the law. So to just see God in creation just tells you that yeah, there's a big God out there. Now what does that mean? Well, there's a God, and the crops didn't grow, so we better throw some virgins in the volcano. You know, I mean, you realize there's a God, but what's the relationship? You just, you don't know. Um, but what he does is we are thinking more of God's gracious and loving presence with believers. 
Um, he wants us to know him in a, as a saving God, as a God who loves and saves us, not as just a God of wrath or a God that explains, you know, just the, the, what he's made in creation, even though it all speaks to him. His evangelical presence, this presence is marked by his promises to come to us who call upon him for help and to save us. By the promises of Jesus that he will be with us, and by his promises of the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide and comfort us. Um, let's see. So if you look up, uh, what do I want? Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. Matthew 28 tells us to baptize and that God is with us till the end of the age. Um, Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. Let's see. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Um, rocks don't call people by name. Idols don't call people by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So God is, is saving in, in all he does. Um, that's the purpose of, of his scripture and in Christ is to save us. Um, the, uh, this personal presence of God in and with believers is not some vague ambu ambiguity, thereness, but a dynamic, gracious, real presence of our God himself in his very essence, analogous to an eternal marriage, or to a vine giving life to branches, or to the head and a body. God himself, not only his gifts, lives in a lives and is in the believer in a union whereby we become partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit dwells in all believers in Christ, not merely figuratively through his gifts, but personally. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. We are, we are God's temple. Um, I guess that means we should all exercise and do better. i got to work on that one. Because um, this is kind of a big, flabby temple. But, but we are all... God's temple, um, and he brings the saving power of his word to us, um, into our ears, into our mouths, when we receive his supper, and through baptism. Um, and this means that the very Godhead dwells in believers in what our church fathers have called a mystical union with all the fullness of his wisdom, holiness, power, and other divine gifts. Wow. So in you, in us, is the fullness of his wisdom, holiness, power, and other divine gifts. Uh, I, I don't know about you. I don't feel that way every day. I, it, it's, 
I guess that's our sinful nature that somehow says, yeah, really? Uh, but it, it, I guess, you know, I don't wake up every morning thinking the fullness of God's wisdom, holiness, power, and other divine gifts are in me. Um, I think the world wants to sort of stomp that out of us in a way. Uh, and the way you stay there is by looking at God's Word and reading those things over and over. The personal God who is present for us through the atoning work of, of Christ and, present, and presents and present in us through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is an omniscient God. He has a perfect knowledge of His creatures and of His people. He knows perfectly our weaknesses and our needs and the secrets of our hearts. And that, for a lot of people to think of, would be quite scary. A God that knows all your weaknesses, a God that knows the secrets of our hearts, uh, you know, things that we probably might want just as soon have pent up there uh, because our uncircumcised hearts, our sinful hearts, our unregenerate hearts can be full of all sorts of things. But God knows them all. Yet He still calls us His own and He wants us to be His own. Uh, no desire for peace or forgiveness, no groaning is hidden from Him. This knowledge is both personal and intimate and this is of great comfort to us as we trust in Him. So even the smallest little groan um, or desire is within him. It's within us, and he knows it. Every attribute and action ascribed to God in Scripture testifies that our God is personal. This is why God, this is what God is truly like. God is as he has acted and revealed himself. We know him by his works. Werner Ellert says, the question to what degree God is personally, uh, I'm sorry, the question to what degree God is personality or how his personality as such is to be described can be answered in no other way than through the consideration of his works. A fundamental fact of God's revelation of himself in scriptures is that he, the Lord, is one and undivided in essence. A correlate, a correlate of his fundamental truth is the biblical teaching of the uniqueness of God, that he alone is God and there are no other gods beside him. It's really hard when you get into conversation with somebody that they want to start it with, well, you know, there, there's multiple ways to, to get to God or multiple ways to know God or multiple ways to go to heaven. And, I mean, how do you lovingly just go, no, <laughs> there's not. Um, you know, uh, uh, dare I tell a story about my sister? My wife's shaking her head, no. But... Uh, <laughs> I knew this, this gal that was a, <laughs> um, at a dinner with some friends, and, and, and uh, they were talking about uh, their Hindu religion, you know, and their belief that how you get close to God, and, you know, you're reincarnated, and, and she's sitting here just at this dinner, kind of like, huh? In reincarnation? And she, and she flat out, she just, well, this girl, she just told these people that, well, that's just crazy. And needless to say, they didn't go back to dinner at that house anymore. But, but once you know the truth of, of God and, and that he gives and how to know him through Christ and the forgiveness we have and a loving God that wants to come to us um, and has come to us and walk this earth to know our foibles and our failings and to call us to be his own, to be forgiven, to believe in him, um, 
once you know a God like that, uh, to think, you know, well, you know, now you get a do-over or anything else or to know God in any other way just doesn't make any sense. The one truth involves the other. This unity and unicity of God, monotheism, is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. From the time of our first parents in the garden, God has always revealed himself as one God who is utterly unique. The unity of God is expressed in the great Shema of the Israelites' morning and evening prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This oneness of God demands that we worship him in our whole heart and being. For the passage goes on to say, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. The unity of God implies and demands unity of worship and doctrine. So you can't have one God and worship him as a stone idol or worship him as a wood carving or worship him in a tree or being in nature or choose to say, well, you know, God, a God for me is a woman because I just don't like men that much or I was married to a lousy one or my father was a whatever. God has revealed himself in that form, uh, as male. Uh, I mean, he, we don't get to argue with that one. And if you do, then you start messing with marriage and the way he shows Christ to be the head of the church uh, and the church as his bride. Um, so you cannot be worshipped in one way at one place and in another way at another place. God cannot be divided. That God is one and cannot be divided means that he is absolutely Absolute unity, free from all com composition and, consisting of, and not consisting of parts. When Jesus says he comes from God and is God, he does not deny the unity of God. The early Christian monotheism is not threatened by the Christology of the New Testament, but made secure. Christ himself speaks about only one God. He represents the Shama and remarks that there is none good but one that is God. And this even though he claimed to be one with God the Father. That was the, the big heresy that they wanted to crucify him for, that he said he was God. You know, how could that be? You know, I mean, they, how could he be God? What about the fact that the Scriptures call the Son and the Holy Spirit God as well as the Father? We can only reply that there can be no contradiction here, but rather a mystery which transcends our understanding. We must simply uphold to all the revealed data made known to us in Scripture. Um, yeah, there are things that we will scratch our head about. Um, I may scratch my head on some things more than you scratch your head about something, and I may understand something more clear than you understand something. Uh, but... We, all we have is what God gives us in Scripture. Neither does that unity of God conflict with the many, sometimes seemingly contradictory attributes or actions Scripture ascribes to God, such as His wrath and His love, His judgment and His grace, His word of law and His word of gospel. Our infinite and transcendent God cannot be caught within the categories of our finite and fallen reason. Our minds cannot set limits to His being and works. God cannot be defined. So, Really, all we have is how God defines himself in Holy Scripture. Defines himself as loving, defines himself as wanting us to know him through Christ, to know him through the salvation we have in Christ, and we can't approach him in any other way. Um, and yes, he being holy, his wrath is, is righteous and holy as well. 
Um, he cannot tolerate sin. So when we sin, he doesn't want to see us. It's like when your little kid does something wrong and you scream and run. Go, I go, go to your room. I'm tired of you. I don't want to see you. But you go into the room later and you love on them and you tickle them and, and you tell them how much you love them and they say they're sorry and uh, you forgive them. And God does that through Jesus. He wants us to look to Christ. Um, you know, when the, when the time comes that, you know, we have to be punished somehow by God's law or we have to feel contrite for his law, we don't like it. But he ultimately wants us to look to Christ who loves us and has died for us and taken any punishment we should have had. So like the unity of God, monotheism is fundamental it's a fundamental premise of all biblical theology. There is no suggestion anywhere in the scripture of gods besides the one true God. Throughout the history of God's people recorded in the Pentateuch, Yahweh reveals himself as the only God. The first commandment of the Decalogue forbids worshiping and recognizing other gods, and the punishment is imposed. He that sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrificeth, I don't speak Old English. Unto any God, save unto the Lord only, shall be utterly destroyed. Um, that, that's a lot of law. He that sacrificeth unto any God, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Um, what gods do we sacrifice to? What gods do we, what, what thing or what, uh, what do we put before God and love, honor, worship, trust above God? Uh, our own self-control of things maybe sometimes, Jim. Um, you know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know. You know what yours is. I know what mine is. But, uh, we sacrifice to another God at times. Uh, and we should be utterly destroyed. But, praise be to God for His Son, for Christ, who endured the temptation to uh, maybe honor the God of His own body. No, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to the cross. I'm not taking this beating. I have the power to walk away from this. No. He gave into the will of his father and sacrificed unto his father things we cannot do and took the punishment we should have taken. Um, he did everything we can't. Some scholars think that Moses or the Old Testament more generally recognizes the existence of other gods besides the Lord, but simply forbade Israel to worship them. However, this is unattainable. Um, well, it talks about Baal and other gods, small g gods, but they aren't real gods. The first commandment indicates not the existence, not the existence, but the non-existence of other gods. Only the Lord is the living God. His very name, Yahweh, is taken from the word to be, to exist. When, the grave, when graven images are forbidden in Exodus 24, no one would assume that scripture thereby attributes divine existence to graven images. No, only the Lord is God, and there is none else beside him. All idols are no gods at all. 
vanities, nothing, wind. God is transcendent, and his transcendence is, is his uniqueness. All the attributes ascribed to God in biblical revelation tell us what God is like. He is holy, separated from all that is not God. Holiness denotes God's radiance and purity, his absolute moral perfection in every direction. It denotes his absolute transcendence and otherness. Therefore, his actions are a wonder to behold. Holiness denotes God's absolute power. What he does, only he can do. But God's holiness also marks his goodness, mercy, and grace, and glory. Um, this goes back to my grandmother looking at the Old Testament. How could you look at the Old Testament and see all this murder and mayhem and killing and wars and think, how is God holy? But everything he does is an act of preservation, of preserving his people. Um, you know, some of the worst things you'll read in Isaiah about the, the things that will come, uh, but then there's always, but I will do this. I'm going to raise up and I am going to bring my people back. God's glory is a manifestation of his holiness, of his absolute majesty, and his glory fills men's hearts with wonder, fear, and confusion, but also with joy, peace, and anticipation. Um, I would say that's in us, all of it. Wonder and fear and confusion. Um, as believers, we certainly endure that at times. Uh, you know, if you've had a diagnosis of cancer or if you've had to deal with something, it, it's confusing. But also joy and peace, knowing that, you know, God is in control and we wait on him to be patient. Um, and in anticipation. You know, that last day, you know, we, when we, we say in church, and I think we've done it more this year than we have in years past, you know, we say, Christ is risen. Amen. Um, it, that's not a, a, a one week, a year thing. Uh, it, you know, we should think of that every, every week, every day, that Christ is risen, and the anticipation that we will rise also. Um, I... I uh, Let's see. Went to one funeral. Pastor McKay and I talked about this at one last, uh, last funeral we did together. But I uh, went to one, and, and it was the lady's wish that um, the casket would be lowered into the ground while everybody was there. So before we closed that interment service, you know, just... <laughs> and the casket goes down into the ground. I, I had not seen this done. And... You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, takes on a whole new meaning when, you know, you're looking at the tree root got cut there, and this rock's ready to fall out of the mud, and, you know, here's this hole with a bunch of earth in it. And you really look at that, and, and this body is going to come out of the ground uh, by the power of God, by the power of Christ's resurrection. This body is going to come out of the ground. This is not, you know, just you walk away and something... You see it. it. It's going in. It's coming out. Um, yeah, it's it just to live with that hope and, and that uh, anticipation, uh, to die with that hope and anticipation. What a gift. What a gift that we don't have to fear uh, in those final moments that, you know, it, it's not the end, that we have hope in Christ. The resurrection for the glorification of our bodies like his. I'm running long. I don't even believe it.
Wow. How many are sleeping? I'm looking. Okay. Thank you for your patience. Uh, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we may look with anticipation to your coming again, your Son's coming to raise us and take us to heaven to be with you, to see your magnificent glory that we can only just, just can't even fantasize about, can't even imagine the glory of, of your presence. And we look for that day, and until that day, we are here with you in the communion of your Spirit, in the body and blood that we receive in our mouths, in the water that we are washed with, and with the word that goes into our ears and gives us faith. We ask that you would continue to give us these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Two quick points of information. Pastor Grady and I will be at uh, Pastors mm -hmm. and Church Workers Conference in Detroit, uh, leaving Tuesday morning, returning Thursday night. Uh, we will be reachable by cell phone in case of an emergency. Uh, otherwise, call the church office and we'll get a hold of uh, Pastor Ullman or Pastor Feeney. Um, uh, no Bible class on Wednesday because of that. Okay? Have a blessed day and week in the Lord. Thank you.